0: For centuries, humans looked up at our brightest planetary neighbor, Venus, and always wondered, could someone be looking back at us? I mean, it made sense. Think of how similar Venus is to Earth. Venus was always, con- I mean, it was always considered to be Earth's sister, like Earth's twin sister. The two planets hold uh, alike similar orbits. They are both within the general habitable zone of their star, meaning the Sun. They're both similar in size, mass, and of course gravity. Wouldn't it make sense that under those vibrant orange clouds, there would be another species of extraterrestrials living out their lives and looking back at their blue planetary neighbor? This is how we all thought until the 1960s, when the great planetary astronomer Carl Sagan discovered an immense greenhouse effect occurring on Venus, even before the early Soviet probes landed and melted on Venus. Once visiting this hellish planet, we were stunned to see that our planetary sister's atmosphere was 96.5% carbon dioxide. Earth, for context, is 0.04116% carbon dioxide, yet we still have insane problems with climate change. Not only was Venus's atmosphere filled with CO2, its surface temperature was hot enough to melt lead. It has a surface temperature of 880 degrees Fahrenheit, which is hotter than the surface of Mercury. And Mercury is nearly twice as close. Yeah. And its atmospheric pressure too was also a hundred times greater than Earth's. For context, this is about being this is about similar to being three thousand feet underwater on Earth. And you need a submarine no submarine to even survive in that condition as a human. For the moment, our dreams of a great planetary partner world brimming with extraterrestrial life were diminished. Still, there is a great phrase that goes as such. There's always a way around everything. It is possible that we may or may not have found how a hypothesized extraterrestrial found a way around Venus's hellish conditions. On September 14th, 2020, a landmark peer-reviewed paper was published published by Cornell University. Uh, At least that's where I saw it. This paper detailed a mysterious discovery of a biomacromolecule called phosphine, you probably have heard this, uh, in Venus's temperate upper atmosphere. The study, headed by Jane Greaves, professor of astronomy at Cardiff University in the United Kingdom, discovered an unnaturally high abundance of phosphine when measuring the millimeter, and I quote actually, the millimeter wave band spectra of Venus's atmosphere At the Atacama Large Millimeter Away in Chile, and the James Clerk Maxwell Telescope in Hawaii. The highest prevalence of phosphine on Venus was located at an upper atmosphere, altitude of around 56 kilometers or so. At least that's what what was detailed in the study. Based on the study, neither the upper nor the lower limits of the phosphine occurrence had been measured. They just knew some general positioning, I guess. Uh, additionally, there is another one. The simplest amino acid, also known as glycine, was discovered to be abundant too on, in, the, in the upper atmosphere of Venus. We will mainly be discussing the discovery of phosphine as it is generally the more, the more well-known one and the more significant one. While, um, while the discovery of glycine, personally to me, is more important... Uh, The phosphine one was the one that gained all the attention. But people don't really think about, people haven't thought about glycine. Like, I didn't even hear about glycine until maybe a week ago. I was watching a video by Dr. Becky. Actually, I'll probably link it down in the description if you're watching YouTube. But, um, yeah, so I saw this video by Dr. Becky, and she talked about glycine. And I was like, there was another discovery on Venus. And that's actually, I would say that's what uh, inspired me to make this video along with uh, the PBS Space Time video on it. So, yeah, so the study uh, conducted by researchers at Mindapur City College and the Indian Center for Space Physics, uh, both in India, discovered using the Atacama Large Millimeter Telescope or Array again. Uh, they discovered an abundance of amino, of the amino acid glycine in the equatorial and mid-latitude regions of Venus. The altitude at which they saw the strongest absorption line, and this indicates the presence of certain molecules in this case, of course, glycine, was, again, around 50 kilometers. That's still within that range. And additionally, with when they discovered phosphine, they were also seeing that it was more prevalent in the uh, equatorial and mid-latitudes, isn't that, like, isn't that interesting? To me, it's very interesting, but I I, I guess it's for you guys to figure out um, whether you think it's interesting or not, but personally, to me, I just, I was so amazed by that. Like, there could be life in our, there could be other life in our solar system. That is the best evidence we have so far, at least. So, this is very important, because uh, these discoveries, while controversial, seem very groundbreaking. I mean, this is this is new. Like, this is new in the realm of science. We have not seen some significant evidence for even possible biological life uh, ever before, to be honest. Like, we've discovered liquid water, but we've never discovered uh, Venus. <laughs> we've never s- discovered how crazy Venus may be. I mean, the first person to actually speculate this was Carl Sagan himself. He was the one who disproved the theory that extraterrestrials lived on on Venus, but he actually said and speculated himself that life very well could exist in the atmosphere because the atmosphere is very temperate and has similar conditions to Earth. And there's a possibility that another one of Carl Sagan's discoveries was correct. Another one of his speculations were correct which <laughs> that's great that's amazing i love carl sagan so you guys are going to hear a lot about him every once in a while. Well. but yeah so phosphine is basically a biomolecule that at least as we know of relating to rocky planets rarely forms at all without biological processes uh, the rocky inner planets of the solar system do not have suitable pressures temperatures and abundance of uh, dihydrogen or h2 to be able to feasibly produce the amounts of phosphine significant enough to explain this unusual abundance of it on Venus. Otherwise, phosphine accounts for almost all of the phosphine, or all the phosphorus in the hydrogen-rich and high-pressure conditions on the Jovian outer planets. On Earth, though, Phosphine, like I said earlier, is extremely rare. It occurs in a very isolated fashion, and I mean very isolated and very very vari- variable uh, fashion in some levels of our atmosphere. But almost all of the phosphine known to pre- be produced on Earth is from extremophiles living in low oxygen environments. In extreme conditions, extremophile bacteria eat up phosphate, add hydrogen to make the compound phosphine. And then eventually excre- excrete the phosphine. The phosphate the bacteria taken generally comes from uh, minerals or biological d- decay. So like that. So it, something dead basically a decomposing organism. They'll take the phosphate, the uh, phosphorus from the decay, and use it to convert to energy. But on Earth, this is one of the only known processes in which phosphine is actually created. Outside of that, it's almost impossible. Uh, Artificial production of phosphine requires, and I'm not even kidding, a 200 degrees Celsius, or 392 degrees Fahrenheit, environment to produce in a laboratory. This is uh, to produce, yeah, pretty much. So this is basically the temperature at which phosphorus acid is disproportionated uh, or broken up into multiple separate products. I'm not really much of a biologist. I, I didn't get a really good grade in biology last year, like an A- or something, so I don't really know my biology, <laughs> but uh, yeah, still. When it comes to Venus, there are also no natural processes that could produce such a significant amount of phosphine, at least as we know of. As we know of. let's Let's be clear here. There are still... there's It's still within the realm of possibility that there are other processes. But for the most part, that leaves us with really two explanations, two possible explanations. Uh, there are more, of course, but these are the two probably main ones, I'd say. Uh, the experiment may have been a fluke and phosphine in fact does not exist in such prevalence on Venus uh, Similar to it's similar to the fluke that occurred with the discovery of gravitational waves like if you know I, I'm not sure if gravitational waves exist but I read this article a few years uh, a few months ago basically where the the people that discovered gravitational waves they actually there was like dust or something. That they, th- that they thought were waves or something like that. It was, a, it was an unusual uh, mistake, let's just say it that way. But yeah, when it comes to glycine, though, the most spectacular portion of this experiment is simply the fact that they are finding glycine in the same regions that we found phosphine. Just listen, uh, for example, just listen to this excerpt from the glycine discovery paper, and I quote, Distribution of glycine is stronger in mid latitudes, 22.5 degrees to 67.5 degrees, compared to the equator. Near the pole, there is no evidence of the presence of glycine. Uh, minus three o oh, something. Uh, recently, the presence of PH3 in Venus was also, or uh, phosphine, was also found to be stronger near mid latitude, mid latitudes, and it was not detected by Alma beyond 60 degrees latitude. The mid-latitude Hadley circulation may give the most stable life-supporting condition with circulation times of 70 to 90 days being sufficient for Earth-like microbial life reproduction. At heights of 65 to 70 kilometers, zonal wind blow at a nearly constant velocity of 100 meters per second between latitude ranges 50 degrees north and 50 degrees south, and then airspeed gradually decreased towards pole. The latitude-dependent distribution of glycine roughly matches within 10 degrees uh, of the detection limit of recently detected phosphine and with the proposed upper Hadley cell boundary, where gas circulates between upper and lower at, at altitudes. Isn't that something? The astrobiology com- community finally has some significant evidence for the possibility of organic life. For the possibility. Let's just be there. So I'm not, I'm not completely sure of the, the controversy surrounding the discovery of glycine because it hasn't really been as controversial as the phosphine discovery. Um, but with phosphine, there were three separate ta- papers, none of which have been published in a peer-reviewed journal yet, but one of which who, that was written by the head of the study, of the phosphine study, uh, were released that, and they were released that, and challenged the discovery of this molecule in Venus's atmosphere. The one we will discuss today is the one released by Jane Greaves, uh, the head of the study that made this significant discovery. In the paper she wrote in response to her own discovery, uh, she actually detailed observations uh, made by the Texas Echelon Cross Echel. Spectrograph. I don't know if I'm getting that completely right. It's also known as TEXES, if you want to look it up for short. And even though it says Texas, it is located in Mauna Kea, Hawaii. <laughs> okay. Uh, these observations indicated a very stringent amount of phosphine in similar ad- altitudes of Venus's atmosphere, indicating a strong conflict in the data received from ALMA and JCMT. So... The Atacama Large Millimeter and the James Clerk Maxwell, but still, this the observations made at Texas uh, that indicated this very small amount of phosphine in Venus's atmosphere were conducted in 2015, and it could likely mean one or both of two things: one of these observations were either incorrect or there is extreme variation in the abundance of phosphine in Venus's atmosphere. And actually, even if it's the latter, it's possible that life could exist because. I mean, even Earth, that's how it goes. But it's it's still possible. I mean, maybe there's a mass extinction event from the microbial life that lives there. It's pure speculation, though. Like, we don't have any solid evidence yet. Still. But now that we've gotten that part out of the way, let's actually... (laughs) Let's get to the very speculative part. This is not... I mean, I guess this is pure... This is not really pseudoscience, because I'm not really claiming... That anything will happen that hasn't happened. Or like, I'm not really uh, building uh, assumptions without evidence. I'm kind of just building an informed uh, speculation of what life on Venus may look like. So, like I said right now, we're going to be discussing what life on Venus actually may look like. So, considering this insane discovery was made... Why not look at what uh, life may look like on Venus? What it's, what is possible? <clears throat> so life on other planets has always been a forefront topic in theoretical science, and honestly, most of all, science fiction. Uh, humans tend to exp- to display these extraterrestrials as like little green men with human like appendages, body structures, and facial features. Basically, they have eyes, arms, mouths, noses, brains, feet, among many others. And honestly, all of these are evolutionary indicators of terrestrial life. So I don't really personally understand why we have to do that. Some of them are, some of them are kind of creative. Like, uh, well, I mean, in Contact, they had it. They had the extraterrestrial take play like take a form of uh, Ellie uh, from the main character, the protagonist her, uh, father, but when it comes to, when it comes to, like, Arrival, they were, they were a little more scientific, I guess, I mean, I guess you could say they're a little more scientific, like, they lived in, they lived in these unusual, like, liquid chambers, they didn't speak, they didn't talk, um, they actually communicated through, like, visible, like, through visible, like, this, like, ink-like substance, and they, they, um, they had, like, they were kind of, like, they were just unusual. They had many, many legs. They were, like, uh, an advanced octopus, basically. So, I mean, I, I respect that compared to the compared to the ones that uh, depict little green men as the exact same thing every time. I mean, I, personally, to me, that's just too human. Too human to be real. And even, like, the, there's that really famous image of the dead alien at Area 51. Come on. That's not that's not real. It's not real. I'm sorry. I don't care how conspiracy theorist you want to be, how pseudoscientific you want to be, but that is not real. But still, this Hollywood assumption is at the very best pseudoscientific in the way that it considers the form of life forms of life that being began completely isolated from another- one, another one another would be physically and genetically similar. We must remember how evolution works before we make such Earth biased assumptions. Evolution by natural selection exemplifies survival of the fittest, at least in terms of environmental suitability. This basically means that the organism with the genes best suited for the environment in which they reside will be most likely to survive and reproduce. So if you have an environment suitable for life on a planet completely different from the terrestrial savannas and steppes, then the planet you view will likely contain some seriously different life with completely foreign physical and even if they have emotions, emotional traits. So I, the truth is we just don't know what they may look like. But we can always assume. We can always assume logically, and this is what we're trying to do here. We're going to try to assume logically, similar to how Carl Sagan did in a 1967 paper and I actually have the link down in the description. You'll see that. But the one one problem is it costs money to access the actual PDF. So, I mean, if you just want to read the abstract, you can. I would I would definitely read the abstract. Carl Sagan is a genius. And also there's another person who did it. I can't remember his name, but I know that Carl Sagan was one of the two. But yeah. Now that we have that aside, though, let's look from the smallest possible to the largest possible. What atmospheric Venusian life may actually look like? So, first off, we will obviously start with the smallest life, the more likely of the um, forms of life, let's just say it that way. Um, when it comes to microbes, distinct... well, it's going to be microbes, let's just be honest, it's more likely that it's going to be microbes. But yeah, so when it comes to microbes, distinct physical features aren't always... Like, aren't as important as, or noticeable as with larger creatures... Uh, reasoned assumptions would generally consider microbial life as arguably the only possible life form on the entirety of Venus so the uh, assumption that there's going to be incredible intelligent life there is just kind of pseudo-scientific to be to say the very least pseudoscientific I mean at that point it's just kind of not only pure speculation but just baloney Bologna, <laughs> but yeah, so these microbes will undoubtedly be fundamentally different from the microbes on earth I mean this is not this is not speculation or anything like this is obvious in more ways than one hundred. <laughs> there are a lot of reasons as to why uh life on Venus would be completely different I mean, for one example is the fact that we are in oxygen and nitrogen uh at, we're composed mainly our atmosphere is composed mainly of nitrogen and oxygen there's uh venus's is composed almost entirely of carbon dioxide and some nitrogen so yeah <laughs> yeah i don't i don't think they're going to be that similar let's just say it that way uh one thing we do know is that based on our own standards for extreme files Uh, these microbes will definitely be considered extremophiles because they're going to be in the upper atmosphere of the most, most hellish planet in the entire solar system. There's no argument there. I'm sorry, but Jupiter is not as hellish as Venus. Let's just be completely honest. Uh, conditions in the upper atmosphere of Venus are still remarkably similar to Earth's, but the composition of the region is still notably different. For context, Venus's atmosphere is composed almost exclusively of carbon dioxide, meaning that oxygen-intaking creatures like humans likely wouldn't, uh, w- likely won't, and can't exist in the region. But still, if, micro- if m- microbial life exists and persists on Venus, then it is likely that they will have distinct features that will like allow them to survive in its atmosphere. Their method of obtaining energy will likely be significantly different from the earth terrestrial creatures, but I assume that it would likely be somewhat composed of carbon dioxide as a reactant, at least. Uh, Additionally, certain other environmental features may result in other unusual traits, yet this is again unknown and is pure speculation. But one of the big ones one of the big different traits i would think of would be uh the how how they would just kind of float because because again remember they're in the upper atmosphere of venus and you don't want to fall to the surface of venus you don't want to fall to the surface of venus you don't now they the thing about venus is venus's upper atmosphere is that it could easily uh, keep microbial life uh, aloft and within that habitable region of the atmosphere. Like, the, the wind speeds at this height are around 186 miles per hour, or 85 meters per second if you're a scientist, uh, which is an insanely high wind speed, and it's enough to keep microbial, microscopic life uh, aloft. Like, seriously, that's not really much of a debate. But yeah, so this constant wind will allow them to remain in the temperate regions of Venus for a long, long period of time. Um, but still, microbial life is not what you guys came to listen to. So of course I'm going to talk about large macro life, as you, you want to call it, macro extraterrestrials. Yeah, why not talk about macro-extraterrestrials? In terms of an upper atmosphere, uh, wait, actually, uh, microbial life on another planet is certainly extremely interesting, but in popular culture, it compares in no way to the possibility of larger organisms on Venus. But first, let's be clear. It is extremely improbable that there's multicellular life, let alone intelligent, even at the level of a chipmunk intelligent life. Based on the pure wonder and curiosity we we maintain when thinking of extraterrestrial existence, I still will examine what potential macro-extraterrestrial life may look like in the upper atmosphere of our planetary neighbor. For YouTube, you're not watching YouTube, you're watching the podcast. Uh, One picture will easily represent what could exist on Venus, what life could exist on Venus, but for the podcast we must be descriptive. Large extraterrestrial life on Venus must be suitable for the environment in which it resides. In terms of an upper atmosphere, it is likely that these larger organisms will need to be somewhat floating, kind of like the microorganisms I was talking about. Um, As, again, the wind may not, but with the larger life, the wind may not be strong enough to keep them aloft. So as with on Earth, the best method to counter gravity without resorting to strong and opposite thrust is with air resistance. First, for context, this assumption is based on my own speculation. So before we actually talk about what it may really truly look like, this is based on my own speculation as many tend to point to hydrogen balloon-like structures in these organisms that would basically allow them to simply float around. So kind of, I, I kind of think of it like... a like a hot air balloon almost it it pretty much is a hot air balloon it's just a bunch of it's just a hydrogen it's it's basically i mean it could be like that what is it called like home or something the uh the movie by universal studios or something in which this old man like put a bunch of balloons on the top of his house and lifted it off the ground it they basically would be like that but on a smaller level like they literally would be like that but when I think of large life on Venus, I think of, like, an, an umbrella-like creature that, use, that works, like, similar to a parachute, so they're always kind of, like, falling, but with uh, insane air resistance. The major difference in my own speculation, apart from general speculation, is that I don't personally consider the hydrogen balloons necessary in keeping these organisms aloft. Uh, with strong air resistance resulting from the umbrella, the ultra-fast wind speeds in the upper atmosphere will keep these organisms alive, no question. When it comes to what large organisms would eat, they may be able to feed off the microbial life in the same way whales feed off plankton. So that's what I was—that's what I was personally thinking. Uh, as they are flying through Venus's atmosphere, they are basically breathing in the microbial life and digesting them. That—that's based on the assumption that they could be performing digestion. I mean, again, when two evolutionary processes occur simultaneously and independent of each other, it is likely that you will see some fundamentally and significantly different uh, traits occurring in the uh, various organisms of the two independent evolutionary existences. But still... uh, Yeah. Now, on the other hand, they could still eat without the need for other organisms. So there may not actually even have to be a food cycle, a life cycle. I mean, they could just ingest CO2 and convert it to energy. I mean, they could, they could basically be living chloroplasts without, that don't uh, take in sunlight, that just kind of convert carbon dioxide into oxygen. So they just perform photosynthesis. They don't, But they don't really use sunlight because you're not going to be able to get that much sunlight with uh, Venus's dense atmosphere and clouds. But still, either way, with some obvious ramifications, anything is possible when it comes to what life on Venus may look like. Still, the probable discoveries of glycine and phosphine may indicate biological processes occurring on the most improbable planet for life. And that means a lot for the universe. If we find life on Venus, we're going to find life a lot of other places, like a lot of other places. For the moment though, we must remain scientifically skeptical, but I am personally optimistic that we are on to something here. Either way, let's allow the scientific process to take its course. And even if we come to a reality in which there is no explanation for these molecules, we will still need to remain skeptical but once we reach that point we can then begin to consider life as the most fundamentally adequate explanation for life for now though we must attempt to figure out other natural processes that may cause such an abundance Uh, thank you all for listening if you have any questions comments concerns or corrections please email me in the email address listed below it's learningbywilliam at gmail.com And as always, have a good morning, a good afternoon, a good evening, and a good night. Take care and stay curious.